My time is yours. I was the last My man standing. I am the man, and the man feels no pressure. You are facing a fuel-injected suicide machine. Fear from the man that rules the world. And welcome back to the Vicious Circle. I get this privilege again sitting here with Sid. How are you doing today? Man, doing great. Thank you very much. Yes. Uh, I know we wrapped up our first episode. How are you feeling about the pod? I think so far it's going really good. I've always, uh, myself, I'm a believer, don't get ahead of yourself. I think that first episode we did not get ahead of ourselves. And I think that's, um, if you eliminate possibility of error, you might have something good going on. I think so far we do. I think so too. Well, we're going to dive back in because there was a little bit of stuff that, you know, we, we covered a lot of ground, a lot of your history, but we missed one crucial part, your sports history. You were heavy into sports. Right. What, what kind of things did you get into for that? Well, um, in the beginning, of course, everybody, back in those days, and they're starting to preach it nowadays. You see even Wayne Gretzky on a commercial the other day saying how other sports made him better at hockey were those uh, schools today want to get where you only play baseball or you only play football. Well, they're, they're starting to appreciate again that to be really good at one thing, you got to try everything. So that's what I really did. And then um, uh, growing up in that era, baseball, football, and basketball were, were fun. But, man, karate was a big deal. Bruce Lee was, you know, the guy, Evil Knievel. I really believe that we were doing some of the first uh, X game stuff, me and my buddies riding up and down, you know, the the streets of the – town and jumping curbs and stuff like that. I mean, I think we really started some of that. Of course, I'm sure other people were doing it as well, but we were into everything. But karate and boxing and baseball and football, and, and, uh, and I've always told people, and especially both of my children, Frank, who's a really athletic, that you know, being tall, you're always going to be a little bit of a late bloomer. And basketball was really the case for me. I really sucked at that for a while. I couldn't get both feet off the ground. But then eventually I got pretty good at that too. And then when people look back at my wrestling, you can look at this and see this in things like, for instance, boxing. And I've told people this. I could tell someone been through a real real gold gloves program before. Because one of the first things you do before you ever put on the gloves, you do a lot of gymnastic stuff. And if people look back on my career, <clears throat> you know, one, jumping from the floor to the uh, apron was a bigger deal. But nipping up, when I'd be on my back or someone would have me in the scissors, I could nip up to my feet. And I learned that through boxing or gymnastics. Yeah, because that's, that's not an easy thing. I know when I went through training, that was, they couldn't teach me that. And I tried. I tried. I could see you doing that. <laughs> so you were also in, like, uh, the, the running and... Uh... Right. <clears throat> this is the thing is, uh, again, we're going to hear me... Everybody's going to hear me say this a bunch of times. Excuse me, I'm a little hoarse today. That I was in the right place at the right time, always. I was 185 pounds when I first started working out. Now, the first, story, the first thing about working out was I learned about diet first, so I really got lean, and that sort of was a turn-on at the time. And, you know, girls were attracted to guys who were skinny and tanned and all that. So then I met a guy named Randy Pettigo who really played, you know, big-time college football, uh, ended up boxing professionally, 
uh, knocked out Michael Greer when he had won the silver medal Olympics. Around here, he was he was like made of that's, granite, a really mean dude, tough guy, really nice guy. That's a huge achievement. But um, he was a, a small guy. He was only like six, six foot, so he had to be an overachiever. And to do those things, he did all the hard work, like the running the bleachers and stuff like that. So then he got me doing those things. And like bleacher running, it was as much as fun to me, you know, doing bleachers, agility drills, carryovers, uh, hopping up bleachers. It was just as much fun as weightlifting because it really added to things in my life. Like, you know, I, my recovery rate was like automatic. <clears throat> Say, for instance, there really is no such thing as a second win. People think there is. It's not. It's really who recovers first. And so those kind of workouts I was having in the weight room that, that I could only achieve from the track work that I was doing in between the weight workouts. So it's more stamina. It is, man. Speed and strength equal power. And that's what I was going for. I wasn't going to be the strongest guy in the world. But, man, <clears throat> like uh, um, when I was went out for the USFL Football League, it wasn't because I had any experience because I hadn't played football since I was a teenager. But it's because at 330, I had the highest vertical leap, the longest broad jump, had a 4840. And, um, the, and then I, I think at the time I did 225 for 33 re, uh, reps on the bench press, and that was an NFL record. So I had the things that they were looking for. I didn't know that really the, one of the main things was the 40 and then the vertical and the broad jump. So I had those things, and they, those carried me to the last cut. I hadn't played football again since a teenager. So having those kind of abilities came from all that bleacher running, all the weightlifting and things like that. Okay, yeah. And that's dedication too because – It is. I walk up the bleachers for my son, and I, that's I sit down. I'm done. No, man, guys, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. It'd be from working out in the morning, say I'd, I'd be sweating bullets at 5 o'clock in the morning and be done there around quarter to 7, go straight to the rat track, 7 o'clock and run. No less than 60 bleachers, and then no less than, say, um, 100-yard sprints, at least eight of those, and then agility drills, carryovers was 100 yards at a time, and I'd do eight of those. So I'm talking serious, serious track time. Now, what was cool about it, there was a place in Memphis called Holly Stadium, and all the professional runners in the city came there. So I got a chance to see – these guys, when you're watching track on TV, it's sort of boring. But when these guys make their kick in those those turns, you know, those 220s and the 440s and stuff like that, it's amazing. Then I got to be real good friends with the track coach at University of Memphis because Randy worked there. So I got to work out with the track team. So we do all this stuff in the swimming pools. and So I was doing all the stuff that they were tre- teaching, you know, kids that worked at, you know, was track uh, kids at University of Memphis. So that's how I had such great foot speed, you know, that's like you said, the right place, the right, right time. Place, right time. That is crazy. And then that's what obviously it led you to try out for that football. Right, exactly. Well, that was just a, a fluke. You know, it was a trial for open up. You know, anybody in the city of Memphis and everybody in the city of Memphis showed up. It's just lucky I had those things prior to that. If I hadn't have run into the Randy Pedigo and hadn't done the bleacher running and all the other stuff, I wouldn't have had that. I didn't know what a 40 – I mean, I didn't know they guided me by my 40 or my vertical or my broad jump. But, you know, being 330 and having – I forget what it was, but it was pretty – pretty shot. everybody went, wow, that kid can jump, man, you know. Nice. And that – again, we're going to go back to dedication because that, that work ethic that you have, that's not just something that's new to you. No. That's, that's family. This is the thing is that, – that's, you know – 
like they say my bad temper, which I do have a bad temper, that's not a uh, trait. I mean, that's a trait. That's not a bad habit. And that really does come from my father, his father, and stuff like that. But so does work ethic, and that's something I got from the same group of people. My aunt, uh, we've talked about it, started AIDS clinic. She came from the same people I came from. Uh, my great-grandfather was her grandfather, Mr. Ashley, Grandpa Ashley, and um, really, really, you know, sharecropper, had these big strapping kids, you know, you know like my great-uncles, um, but now how he got here, which is, again, if he hadn't have gone through what he went through in life, I might not be talking to you right now. What happened was he was living in Mississippi at the time, and he was on the way home one evening from coming in the fields, and these two brothers ambushed him on the way, and he shot and killed both of them. Now, even in self-defense, you know, the town people said that you know, maybe you shouldn't be here anymore, so that's where they moved right up here to Joyner and of course, Joiner's, you know, 15 minutes from where I'm living right now, uh, or I might not, you know, I might be out of Mississippi right now or something. You just don't know. Exactly. Now, going right in this book, I've gone and I'm doing some of my homework. So I went back to the old farm and actually ran across the bandits in his 80s. was a young man at the time that my grandfather, my great-grandfather was alive and said that, yeah, he was a pretty tough guy to deal with, uh, you know, but... When it came down to, you know, because they're sharecroppers and having a tough time, and someone died and needed, a, you know, didn't have a casket, that he'd build one for them. So um, I think that's not that I'm, you know, like my great-grandfather, but that's what people think of me for the most part either. You'll hear one of two sides from me. You know, Man, Sid's really a great guy. Like the story I told you about my pool guy. I didn't say two <laughs> words to him. Now he's gone. And, I mean, I literally have people tell me that, you know, my wife has said this, that, he screamed at me, and I never said a word. <laughs> so, I mean, I, that's sort of natural, I guess, out of me. But, well, but again, the hard work comes from there. Uh, that's why, again, you know, my uncle was an intelligence officer in the Navy. My father was a, a pilot. I actually soloed myself, I think, at the age of 17. Uh, my, pop, my father was a pilot instructor. So, I mean, I, I, I really, when people ask me all the things I've done in my life, that was probably the greatest moment. Uh, I'll never forget, and they always say that you'll solo on a day that you least expect it, and this day it was raining, and it was really, and a crosswind really matters in one of these single-engine planes, and so uh, I remember uh, my instructor said, are you ready, and you don't say no, and <laughs> yeah. I went, yes, so I took off, and i never forget it, it was 6-8 Foxtrot were the last call letters on the plane, and I remember being up there by myself, and I went, wow, man, I'm doing something nobody else is doing right now. I'm really looking down on everybody. Now, I do have a – if someone really gives me a hard time and I, I want to really make them feel bad, I say this to people. I made this up actually in the gym one day. Guy said, trying to be nice to me. But in the gym, I'm not a nice person. And so he's trying to be nice. He goes, Sid, I've always looked up to you. I said, whatever his name was. I said, let me tell you something. When I'm sitting down, you still have to look up at me, <laughs> okay? And I do that to people if I really want to give them a hard time. Like people with John Deere recently – tried to charge me like three times what they're supposed to charge me on labor. And I got to, you know, the head guys in, their, in the office, and they're, you know, really, I got them over a barrel, and I told them that statement. I said, guys, when I'm sitting down, you still have to look up to me. <laughs> and I asked them, too, have I taught you a lesson yet? But um, Oh, man, that's awesome. So, and that's, I got to admit, that's one of the things that attracted me to do this podcast with you is because of that work ethic, because of what, like, how hard you push yourself. Right. So now we get, we get forward a little bit, and we're meeting Lanny and Randy. 
Now, you had said that at this point, your wife is, you're, you're married at this point, correct? Right. And she's pregnant. So at some point in here, your son is being born while you're trying this. Right. What happens, I, I got through wrestling school, and um, um, then you have to just get out there and get a job. And so I'm out there just doing these in, little independence, like I suggest you. There's a place up there was everyone could go to. It was Mauled, Missouri. Had really a dirt floor. Um, it was, you know, if you were booked anywhere from 5 to $25. And if you weren't booked and could get work, that you got a hamburger. So, you know, my first few nights of just being there, it was a hamburger. But this is the thing was, you know, it was a two-and-a-half-hour drive. <clears throat> Usually I rode with someone like my, my partner at the time, my friend Mike James. We on our way there. We made up our names. <clears throat> we was going through Steel, Missouri. So I said Sid Steel and Iron Mike. We called ourselves the Heavy Metal Express. Now, what I did when I got there, Mike didn't like this. I wanted to get as many matches as I could in the night. So I do the best out of three in a tag and the best out of three in the singles. And I'd work six times every night. I said, I'm not going there for the hamburger with the five bucks. I'm going there to get experience. Now, have doing that, and as stiff as me and Mike were, some of those old-timers, they retired really quick. <laughs> They're <laughs> we tapping. Were, we, were, we were killing people, man. And they were hitting me back real hard, and I didn't realize that, that was a, I was getting a receipt. I just thought <laughs> that's the way we all work. And these guys, they uh, Cowboy Watson and Freddie Neal, Man, the next week I showed up, they weren't there anymore. They said, <laughs> heck with this guy, dude. That's hilarious. They even had a rope that we'd swing. There was a, somehow there was a rope coming from the ceiling, I'd swing and kick somebody out, swing it across the ring. Oh, see, now I'd do it just for that. That's yeah, a, that's, that's what a, I'm saying. This, it was so much fun, guys, and uh, making that trip there. And if we did get paid, me and Mike would get us a, it seemed like a case of beer, fill it, you know, get a few dollars of gas, and then head to the first little local bar that everybody knew who we were. You know, just tell them about our big night in wrestling, you know. That's crazy. So then, you're, like I said, you're now starting to do this, but your son is coming. Right. How did that work? This is what happened. Again, uh, this is all the same time as I'm meeting, you know, Randy Pettigo, who really is a big influence in my life as far as things, you know, just making simple decisions. And so wrestling was sort of so-so there. I wasn't being real successful. I wasn't getting a break. I wasn't getting a full-time gig, gig yet. And so... um I was hanging around really rough people, and I was in and out of jail a couple of times, you know, just for fighting and stuff. And finally, Randy said, hey, man, you got this kid. You got a career ahead of you. You've got to really make some, some decisions. And some of them's got to be tough ones. I mean, like, you got to get away from these people you're around and then really put your nose down and really see if you can make this wrestling thing work. And that's what I did. I, I got away from some of the people that were causing me, you know, bad influences and put my nose down and then, uh, got lucky and um, ran into a guy named Bob Polk at a gym and never knew that there were other territories other than Memphis, right? So he comes to me and he goes, yeah, we got a character that we need. We called Lord Humongous and we'd like to bring it back. Would you be interested? In, I got a manager named Downtown Bruno. And I knew Bruno, but Bruno wasn't in Memphis anymore. And I, really, I did Memphis for like two or three weeks at what it was. Somebody that was supposed to come in fell through and they brought me in as Lord Humongous just as a fill-in. So I think I worked like three weeks straight and then I didn't know when they said get your heat. I didn't know what that was. So I, I sucked really terribly. So anyway, I'm thinking, you know what? I don't know this Continental. I know Bruno but it's a, it sounds like a full-time gig. So uh, that's what I did. I met Bruno at a truck stop here in West Memphis and I followed him down to Birmingham. We got lucky and found a basement apartment. Didn't know the guy. 
But what it was is when we got the t- our first TVs, they were all the guys we'd known from Memphis. Dutch Mantel, Tony Anthony, um, Danny Davis. You know, it was just what it was. They, the guys just went from little small place to small place. So that was a you know, relieving feeling, knowing that you, you were still really in a company. Okay. Because I didn't know that it was another company. I was really shocked. You know, that, and actually, that territory is much better than the Memphis territory was. It was more productive. And, uh, it just, man, it's probably, to look back, it was probably the most fun I ever had in my life in the business. Because, you know, this is what I, I told you earlier. This is before I knew anything about jealousy. And I thought everybody was in the, you know, on the road together having a good time. I'll tell you, too, I didn't know about not throwing someone under a bus, which I did my first time. <laughs> we were in Gaddiston, Alabama. And as Lord Humongous had to wear this black hood. And uh, it was the hottest building in where we went to. And the, you go outside to get a little break of air. And I couldn't do that because I couldn't go out without my hood. So, oh, Bill... His name was the Black Assassin. It was just me and him in there. And he goes, well, Sid, you know, when you ain't in here, those guys talking bad about you. Talking about, like, you the boss's pet and blah, blah, blah. I said, what? I was really put back by this because when we're all in here together, like, they're my best friends. So I waited for everyone to gather back in there. And I said, guys, old Bill here told me when I'm not in the dressing room, You guys are talking a lot of shit about me. <laughs> I said, if that's true, I said, why don't y'all spill that shit out on the floor and let's talk about it. And, man, the place went quiet. <laughs> you know, they're like, this dude ain't fucking around. Excuse my language, you know. But I was fixing to show them something right quick, right quick, you know. <laughs> but I don't even think they realized that, you know. But, again, um, I didn't know that. And what it was, the new owner of Continental was David Woods, and he was a mark for And I was the biggest guy in the territory, you know, so he was a mark for that. Him and his kids would bring me apples to the TV tapings, and the, uh, he owned his own television station. So he was really nice to me. And I didn't know this too. I was on a little bit, four hundred dollar week guarantee. I couldn't make any less than four hundred dollars, but that's still hard to pay bills on living away yeah. from home and paying rent at home. And you know, the, me and Bruno sharing that basement apartment. But again, I, I didn't know there was jealousy. I thought everybody was just having it was the good old boy deal, you know? Yeah, it's not. Oh, well, you, uh, you, you told me you got going into that. And then, like I said, we were talking about, uh, with your son being born, you actually didn't get to see a lot of that. Well, both children with Frank, you know, unfortunately the oldest kids when the career started. So, you know, when I was a continental, I think they came down, I came home one day or two days for Christmas and actually we worked Christmas day. So I left that Christmas morning and I think they came down for two days, uh, on her, on her vacation one time, and that was the only time I saw him that year. Now, my son Gunner, uh, when he was born, it was just by chance. I was flying through Memphis that day, and there were two flights that would get me to my destination, you know, on time. So I took the, you know, let my bag, you know, going through, and I had a friend of mine pick me up at the airport, ran me to the hospital. She had already had the baby, took a quick picture with him, and then right back to the airport and right back to the show. Wow. And people don't realize that. Now, the thing was is um, I was working in the office at WCW at the time with Ole Anderson, you know, so I had the I could have said, hey, I want to be home for this week, but I didn't do that. I didn't, you know, take uh, abuse my privileges or abuse who I was. You know, I said, no, I'm going to do, and I thought everybody else would have done this too, but I think some guys did take off for their birth of their children. But, again, you know, um, a newborn kid is not going to remember that. That's the way I look at it. You know what I mean? He got the picture with me, and then 
I got to go on the road and make money, and I got to pay bills. No, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Absolutely. So, again, we'll go back right now to Lanny and, and Randy. You were at football. You didn't make that last cut, and they got a hold of you. Now, I was listening to a podcast, and this kind of just jumped into my head. They said there's two stories that people have been hearing about how you got in the business. One is through Lanny and Randy, and the other is that Lawler found you. What happened was, how I really got into the restroom was the football thing ran its course. I was at a TGI Fridays, TGI F Fridays, whatever you call it. And he came up to me and said, hey, I'm a promoter for a guy named Eddie Bond. Eddie Bond was a local country music guy. And said, uh, I know a guy named Guy Coffee in wrestling. If you want to get in wrestling, make some money. So we went to the Coliseum, and I seen Randy and Hillbilly Jim, which was Harley Davidson at the time, and Lanny Poffo and Tracy, Tracy Smothers. Saw those guys in the gym, but not a lot of you know communication because we're all in there for different things. Well, they saw me that night there at the building with this guy, and this guy, you know, in wrestling you don't really have an agent or you don't have a manager. That all oh, that's all TV stuff. So they came. This is how it really came about. They came to me and said, hey, man, if you're interested in wrestling, get rid of that guy. You don't need that jerk that was with you the other night, and we'll introduce you to the uh, the guys that can help you. And the guy that helped me, my trainer, was Tojo Yamamoto. So that's what they did. They introduced me. Actually, I went back to the Coliseum. Guy Coffee introduced me to Tojo Yamamoto, and then that's when me and Sabrina started driving down on Sunday morning. She'd drive down. We'd leave at 3.30 in the morning and get me there around quarter to 7.00. I do my wrestling school to about twelve o'clock, and then I drive home, and we'd stop at uh, Rolella Lynn's uh, Country Kitchen and have lunch every Sunday on the way home. Nice, yeah, because she was pregnant at the time. So, that, so it was Randy and Lanny that really, yeah, that, that you know, and then also really, I got really good input from uh, Hillbilly Jim. I can't remember his real name right now, um, but you know, he told me things like this too, and this is what helped me, you know, really get a start, a good understanding. He goes. He says, Sid, listen, you're a big guy, I'm a big guy. He goes, this stuff is fake. And if they ask me to lose, I go, how do you want me to do it? You mean trip as I'm walking in? He says, two things. One, if, you, if you'll do that, you know, not take his personal, one, you might get a job, and one, two, you might make some money. And I didn't know what he was meaning. I mean, you've got potential. Don't screw it up by being a jerk saying, I don't want to do this and do that. So I took that really seriously. And uh, all the way to the point of in my career when I got a booking sheet I never looked at who I was working with because it to me I, again I wasn't a wrestling fan I was there for the money so I had done all my all the work I could do once I got to the ring I had worked out twice that day I had tanned probably twice eight fifteen different times you know whatever I had to do run so when I got there it was, that was the easy part so I wasn't going to make that hard for me and I wasn't going to care what the outcome and matter of fact when I was working WCW I got fined a lot of times for volunteering, volunteer, to volunteer to lose when I, I would be in main events with like Lex and who I was really it was scheduled to be the next world champ. Uh, I should have been going over, but they Lex didn't want to do the job, so they fin- send them finish for a DQ or count out. We were in Amarillo, and I'll never forget this. And went to the going to another car that night, and the fans said a couple of them said, "Sid, you know you sucked tonight." And I said, "Yeah, I know. I, I, the whole thing did." So we got to Lubbock the next night. I changed the finish and I actually put him over. Now, while I'm walking to the car that night, you know, not the same group of fans, but, you know, you know the hecklers. And I, as a heel, they heckle you all the way. I love that. And I love heckling people, too. But um, so uh, I said, you know what, man? You're awesome. 
And what it was, they saw the finish. And so um, I was getting in trouble for it. They came to me and said, you got to quit this or you're going to get fined. I said, well, I don't mind doing a count out, but just don't make it main event. Put me earlier in the card somewhere, and that way it doesn't count because people really remember the last thing. Yeah. And WWF really had the, one of the better ways of looking at it. Just put the good guy over every match. People are paying for their money to see that. There's not a greater achievement that a bad guy can do other than losing. You know what I mean? If he wins, he just sort of keeps that momentum. But in house shows, it doesn't matter. By the time you're back in Minneapolis, you know, you've done 17 other TV shows and that you're working with someone else. It doesn't matter. Okay, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. So you, you, you got to meet Tojo. Like, that's, that's the guy who basically puts you on this road. Right. Wait, I was one of the questions I had was how you met him. Now I, we know that. Right. What was your relationship like with him? Like, well, you know, was, this is the whole thing. This is when the business was real mysterious, guys. Uh, and I really not. This is. It might sound weird to even talk about this, but all right. So, you know, there's always a fee for wrestling. I think it was two thousand or twenty five hundred dollars. So they told me that. So I said, man, I'm not going to have that much all at one time. They said, well, just bring what you can bring. So, you know, each week I'd come, you know, 200 or 300 or whatever. And uh, Tojo said, no, 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 not worry about the money. So then I still brought it every week. But, you know, you know every time I tried to attempt to give it to him, it was like, no, don't worry about it. No, no. Because then he never would. Of course, this is before they smartened you up. They didn't even tell us wrestling was, uh, was it real. And this is a true story. As I was going through wrestling school, they called me one time at home and said, uh, hey, uh, again, somebody didn't show up. And it was the fabulous ones working against the sheep herders, which, you know, the sheep herders were the scariest looking guys in the world, especially Jonathan Boyd, you know, with all the scars on his head. And um, they said, well, we need you to come over to Coliseum tonight. And I'm sitting there eating dinner and I, you know, at home. I went, okay. So I go there and they meet me at the outside. You know, I, not, I'm not allowed in the locker room. So they sit there and they go, this is the deal. Um, got Jonathan Boyd sitting in the corner of the uh, sheep herders and uh, you're going to be sitting in the corner of the fabulous ones in the chair. And your job is simple. If Jonathan Boyd gets out of his chair, you go over and put him in a chair. I'm going, okay, and it's fake, and he's going to work with me. They didn't tell me this. Uh, you, got it? you got it? I'm like, yeah, I got it. So I stand there all night through the whole show outside that door, you know, by myself. And guys would come out and look at me. I guess they're all getting a giggle out of this, you know, because, you know, I don't know what's going on. So they never sparked me up. So when we got out there, you know, I'm you know, thinking, oh, I, this, I'm going to keep my job. i got to fight Jonathan Boyd. <laughs> you know, so he gets up. And as he gets up, I get up. And then he sits back down. <laughs> and that's how they didn't smarten people up. That was like, whoa. And then it worked. And then I sit back down. He sit down. And all of a sudden, you know, just as the you know, fabulous ones would be getting up to hand, upper hand, he would go to stand back up. And then I'd stand up and he'd sit back down. I went, Shit, this is pretty easy. He's scared of me, that jerk, you know. But, again, that's what they did back then. So, again, with Tojo, I don't know if they had plans for me. So, what happened was, um, this is, again, sort of scary for your first beginning of wrestling. So, I uh, ended up going, me and my wife and a friend of mine, Mike James, and we got into a fight over at Bill Street at Music Fest and ended up breaking my foot. And um, I told Tojo on the phone, and said, hey, man, I broke my foot. I'm not going to make it to Sunday. He goes, fuck you, motherfucker. Never come back here. And I'm thinking, well, what, did I, what did I do? So now he's mad at me. So, um, again, this is where Lawler comes in, who really got me started. So um, 
they called me and said, look, we got a spot. We want to be a Lord Humongous. And my first match was with Austin Idol's main event against Nick Bockwinkle and Jerry Lawler at the Coliseum. So what it was, I had that's where I did that little three-week run with Memphis. Now, I ended up running across Tojo in Evansville. There's a basement. He got down and he told me, he goes, yeah, you son of a bitch, you never pay me. I go, well, <laughs> I said, yeah, but I tried to. He goes, yeah, I'm going to get Gypsy Joe going to kill you sometime. Now, Gypsy Joe is this really weird-looking dude that really looked like a gypsy and was known to stab people. So I was, for the rest of my career, I was looking for Gypsy Joe and pop out of a closet somewhere. <laughs> this is no shit. It was at Baldwin, Missouri, at that little town there one night, right, working for five bucks or a hamburger. And a guy that came in actually gave me my finished pirate bomb, right? He's the one that showed it to me. And this is before this, though. This is before he showed me the pirate bomb. So I know he's from Memphis, and I know he'd never been at Malden when I've been there all of a sudden he's there. I'm thinking, okay, Gypsy Joe's sitting here, you know. So he had this spot where I was going to be on that you know, apron or right by. He goes, stay right there. I'm going to come up and drop a knee to your head, sell it on the way, you know, sell it to the floor, meaning I guess it was a spot to get out of the ring or something. So when he came over to drop that knee, I moved. And I thought he was going to try to really crack my skull or something. So he got to the back, and he's really weird. He goes, man, why'd you move on that? I said, oh, uh, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> but really, I was scared that Gypsy Joe had sitting there to crack my skull, oh which my it God. wasn't the case, you know. That is hilarious. Yeah, but again, that's just ribbing. That's what they, you know, we rib in this business. I got ribbed pretty good. But you were you were being taught under kayfabe. Yeah, taught under That's kayfabe. That's hilarious. It is. I mean, now I did my son like that, uh, Gunner. With I did a documentary. You see the two trophies I won. Uh, I, you know, on hobby. I do film myself, and we did a documentary right after the movie called The Wrestler. You know, to show that where there is no cussing, there is no sex, and I like like we talked earlier about being on Broadway. I like things on a small scale because you're handcuffed. You don't have the people there. You know, it's a lot harder to get to people. And then you can't cuss. You can't do these things. And so we did a documentary, and he actually stood in. He he did the character Lord Humongous. And actually, I did it, too, during the, the feud we had there. But he filled in for me, that, you know, to, where I could film this. And also, he could be my alter ego, where I actually faced off of Lord Humongous during this little documentary. And um, so... Uh, I ribbed him. What it was, he, he's a big kid, like 365, 390, 6'10", you know. And so I had him come in with that black hood and never let him take it off for like a month. And everybody was like, you know, he's only like 15 or 16, you know, with a big baby face. So they're like, you know, everybody was scared to death of him, you know, because he never said he's real shy, never said a word. And then the first week he took it off, they were like, wow, he's a baby, man. <laughs> but I did him the same way I ribbed him. That's hilarious. Well, you know what? That is a good place to stop on this one. Um, yeah. Why don't we get to our question? All right. My time is yours. Um, okay. Our question, our first question actually comes from Pete Marsh. He's from Blenheim, Ontario, Canada. Uh, Pete, what do you got for us? Hey, Rob. Hi, Sid. Hey, Rob. Hey, I, my question is about the latest Raw reunion show. I had saw you were advertised for it. was really looking forward to seeing you appear but then um you weren't on there um just kind of wondering what was going on with that well what happened was uh i have an aunt excuse me started the first aid clinic study florida she passed away about three or four years ago and just recently on her clinic they added another wing and they named it after her actually her called the joyce good center 
I hadn't had a chance to get down there to see it, so I went down to see it. And part of walking in and seeing something like this, because of the confidentiality of her, pa- her patients, she was so uh, crazy about that. I could only even go in there during lunchtime between 12 and 1, and then I could only be in there at that time. So when I was in during that visit to her, her wing of her new clinic, her, her new cl- a wing to her clinic, they called me. And I was in Florida, but the deal was is it was a hurricane coming through here, and I couldn't get home. So I said, let me try to get home, and I'll call you guys back. Well, I didn't get home till like, that Friday. And so when he gave me, like, a couple of days, so uh, the guy, I can't remember his name right now, he called me back, and I said, listen, man, I just under a short notice like this and just getting home, I thank you very much for the invitation and stuff like that, but I just can't make it. Maybe next time, if you have, you know, I want to thank you very much for thinking about me for the uh, for it, but I, I can't make it in the future. If you got something else, uh, I'd be glad definitely to think about it. Okay, great. Thanks for taking time to answer that. Thanks, and I guess appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to the podcast. Thanks, thanks, Pete. Th- I, yeah, thanks, Pete. <laughs> that's going to wrap it for our very first episode. Um, you ready for our next one, Sid? Let's go. All right. You've been listening to the Vicious Circle Podcast. Your host, Sid Udi. Co-host, J. Robert Bellamy. Additional research by Pete Marsh. The Vicious Circle Podcast was produced by Two Cousin Road Trip Media, a division of JX3 Media Productions. The intro music, Omega Amigo, was by The Shaman. All rights to the podcast are held by Sid Udi.